invite you to turn in your Bibles to our text this morning, Joshua chapter 1, verses 10 to 18. It will also be here on both screens. Here's the word of the Lord. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions. For within three days, you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that, the Lord, that, the Moses, that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. This is the word of the Lord. Please have a seat. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them up. Uh, we are going to be in the second half of Joshua chapter 1. So if you, if you see the flow, it's fairly easy to see the flow of, of Joshua chapter 1. You have God commanding Joshua, and Joshua obeys. That was last week. And then this week, you have Joshua then commanding the people, and the people obey. So that, that's the, the simple flow to what's going on. And then last week, where God was commanding Joshua to be strong and courageous. This week, the command from Joshua to the people is prepare to take the land. That's a, that's a pretty big command. The promised land, the land that we've been anticipating and hoping for and praying for, it's on the other side of that river and the marching orders have been given. Prepare to take the land. And as I look at Joshua chapter 1, you know, there, there's so much in that first half where we were last week. There's, there's so much good stuff that something in the second half can often go unnoticed. In the second half of this chapter, there's, there's a teaching that's both deeply theological, eminently practical, and often overshadowed. And the teaching is this, God's people must be unified. That's what's going on in the second half of this chapter. God's people have to be unified. In Joshua's context, they have to be unified if they are going to go in and take the promised land that God has for them. So I was thinking this week a lot about what, what unifies us. You know, what, and it really is the, the thing that we value the most typically is what unifies us. So if, you, you know, if your kids go to the same school, you're probably going to be unified in your desire for that school to do well. Um, if your college football team is doing well, you're going to be unified with all the other alumni and your desire to see that football team go the whole way. 
if your boss at work is a condescending, arrogant jerk, you will probably, I would imagine, be unified with your coworkers and your desire to see him move on. What is it? The thing that we value the most is often something that's going to unite us to other people. And so the, the unifying value for the Israelites was God and his plan to give the Jewish people this land. The unifying value for Christians is very similar. It's the triune God and the hope that through Jesus Christ we'll be delivered to an even better promised land. That's the unifying value of the Christian faith. So the 12 tribes, that we, you know, if you read your first five books, you see there were all kinds of bitter disagreements, but they stayed together. They stayed together because they had one God that they, that they followed, that they worshiped, and they knew that they had to stay together if they were going to get this land that God had promised them. And so Christians, likewise, we are divided over a myriad of preferences, probably more so now than ever before, but we stay united because we know that that is God's plan for God's people. And that's what we're going to be diving into this morning. I, uh, I have a, a really close friend who's a Pentecostal pastor. And he, he has this joke he likes to tell. I've probably heard him say it five times. He says, where you have one Pentecostal, you have an evangelist. Where you have two Pentecostals, you have a church. And where you have three Pentecostals, you have a church split. And it's really easy as non-Pentecostals to laugh at that joke. But in our age of radical consumerism and fierce defendants of our own individual rights. It shouldn't come as any kind of a surprise that one of the great casualties of our culture is church unity. I mean, how many, how many truly crazy things have you seen a church split from? I mean, I, I've seen churches split certainly over music. I've heard of churches splitting over um, whether to use land as a cemetery or a playground. I, I've heard churches split over whether to install chairs or pews. I've heard churches split over whether to call the pastor brother or reverend. <laughs> I mean, we, we've split over the way the pastor dresses, Sunday school versus community groups, American flag in the service or no American flag. I've even seen a church in my lifetime split over whether a service should be all white or integrated. I mean, the things that we have split over, many of them are truly crazy. And it says something about the way that we understand, or maybe the lack of the way that we understand the importance of the unity of God's people to God himself. Unity was paramount to the design and success of the Israelites. And in this passage, we see the call for unity. We see the foundation of unity and then finally, we see the fruit of unity. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I'll start with the call for unity. So what's the very first thing that Joshua does when he is now taking the reins and stepping into the shoes of Moses? The very first thing, he tells them to prepare, and then he immediately goes to these two and a half tribes. And because he knows that there are two and a half tribes that might be tempted to not help them out. And he knows that all 12 tribes, they've got to be unified if this promised land is going to be conquered. And so to understand and really appreciate what's going on, there's some historical things that I think we need to unpack. 
First off, I, I, I know that a lot of people don't understand what these half tribes are about in, in the Old Testament. So there are two half tribes. If you remember, you had Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Jacob had 12 sons. Each son got a tribe. But Joseph, because he was so important, because he was so instrumental to saving Israel in the time of famine, he got two half tribes. Basically, his two sons, instead of there being a tribe of Joseph, you had a half tribe of his son Ephraim and a half tribe for his son Manasseh. So that's how you got these these half tribes that make up the 12 full tribes. The second thing that we have to understand is that the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, their promised land, their territory that had already been laid out, theirs was east of the Jordan, right? This is really significant because where are the people right now? East of the Jordan. So they're standing on the land that these people have already been allocated. So you could imagine it wouldn't be crazy for some people in, in those tribes to start thinking, why do we have to go fight for land that isn't going to be ours? And so Joshua goes to them and he reminds them of the promise they made to Moses back in Numbers 32. Moses anticipated this and he made these tribes promise, when we get to the promised land, you're going to have to fight for everybody, even though your land is on the east of the Jordan. So that's what Joshua is doing. He's going first and foremost to these two and a half tribes on the east of the Jordan to secure a unified 12 tribes going in to take this promised land. 12 tribes fighting as one nation. The unity of God's people is absolutely foundational and absolutely critical to the success of his people because that's the way that he has designed his people to operate. He, it, It's true in the Old Covenant and it's true in the New Covenant. It's true of a church locally, like between the members of a church, but the unity of the church is also true universally between us and other Christian churches. There's two aspects to this unity that we see in Joshua and how it plays out today. In the New Testament, you see Paul very seriously and adamantly admonishing his people toward unity. I mean, to the Corinthian church, he says, do you not know you are one body? To the Philippian church, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accordance and of one mind. I think you could make a good argument that Paul's entire letters of 1 Corinthians and Romans were basically a letter of unity. The problem was unity, and Paul wrote those letters to address that single issue. Unity is of paramount importance in Joshua's context and in our context. So, because there is a local and a universal dimension to this, I want to I make two clarifications, and, and I want to do one locally and one universally. The first clarification is that unity is not conformity. All right, unity does not mean conformity. God is not wanting all of his people to look the same and dress the same and act the same and vote the same. All right, that's not a church, that's a cult. That's not what we're, we're moving towards here. But he also doesn't want diversity for diversity's sake. All right, the Unitarian Church does a fine job of that. What God wants is unity amongst diversity. 
because that's who he is. And so when we are unified in our diversity, we're communicating something about the triune God who is beautifully diverse, three separate persons, yet wonderfully united in one God. So God is calling us into something about his character and the way we are supposed to be unified. That's the first clarification. It begs a question, though, that takes me into a universal clarification. And the question is simple. If unity is what God wants, then why do we see so many different types of churches all over every city we go into? All right, to answer this, I think it's helpful if I do a very brief and very overly simplistic history of the church. (laughs) Because we have to know where we've come from to understand what it is that we have here today. And then I really want to dial in on there are some good reasons to split and some bad reasons to split. One compromises unity, the other doesn't compromise unity. So to do that, we're going to start with the first thousand years of the church. During the first thousand years of the Christian church, we were largely united. We were organizationally one church. There, there, there were spats of, you know, there were spats of heresy popping up here and there that were, that were quickly squelched. But as a whole, nobody disagrees that for the first thousand years of the church, we were one united church. And then in 1054 came the Great Schism, the split between the Roman Catholic Church in the West and the Eastern Church, which we now call the Orthodox Church. This is the first major church split. And again, overly simplified, but in essence... The center of the split was where does the authority lie? Because the Roman Catholic Church said that magisterium, the the Pope and and his people, basically, they have the power. The Eastern Church said, no, 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 we believe the power is largely in Scripture and the creeds. And then so you have the Roman Catholic Church in the West who would say, well, the Pope has the power to change the creeds. And the East is saying, no, the power comes from the creeds. And so you can see this is an inseparable, inseparable divide So then in 1054, we now have two churches. And it stays two churches for the next 500 years until Martin Luther pops on the scene. And a lot of people don't understand that Martin Luther, his goal was not to divide the church. He never wanted to start a whole new branch of church. His goal was to reform the Roman Catholic Church. He thought in the beginning the Pope would be on his side. The Pope would welcome this reform. The Pope excommunicated him. So Martin Luther would say, I never split the church. The church put me out. And he started what we now know as the Protestant branch of the church. So you have three branches of the church now. And then a little bit later in that same century, the church excommunicated the Church of England. So now you have four branches of the church. And it's really important to understand that the Church of England did not want to separate. They did not want to be known as somebody who separated. They had this really famous saying. They would say, we suffer schism, we did not cause it. That was really important to their cause. We suffer schism, we did not cause it because nobody wanted to be seen as a church splitter. If you're put out, you can't help it. But they didn't start off trying to split the church into a fourth branch. But that's what happened. And then as we well know the third branch, the Protestant, Protestant branch, has splintered now into hundreds of different groups comprising Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and a whole slew of stripes of charismatics. 
All right, so that's the very simple, um, very simple explanation. And some of these splits, especially when you get into Protestantism, some of them were justified and some of them weren't. You know, sometimes there's a very good reason to split as a church. Sometimes a church gets so big, it makes sense to have two churches instead of one. Sometimes people are traveling such distances to, to come to church. It makes sense that we would work to provide a church in their context. Sometimes, as regrettable as it is, good, well-meaning, humble Christians come to different points of view on non-essential things like baptism and church government. So the faith has not been compromised here, but it's gotten to the point where they can't functionally be in the same organism, so they do split. But even in these types of splits, there should remain a strong sense of unity. We're still on the same team. We're still working together. There, There are churches all over Orlando that I have theological disagreements with, but who I consider partners in our effort to proclaim Christ and see him exalted in the city. So even when there are these differences of non-essential theology, we should remain united in our understanding that we are one universal church. That's why we read the Apostles' Creed today. I wanted to say as a church, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Okay, Many of you know we're not saying the Roman Catholic Church there. Catholic simply means universal. We believe in the universal church. We believe we are not all that there is. We are connected to a story that is so much bigger than us, that's unfolding all around us and through us, that we get to be a part of. But there are, unfortunately, bad splits. Splits that result from pride, from arrogance, from personal ambition, and then, yes, from heresy. So we need to be able to know the difference between a good split that doesn't compromise the unity that God is putting forward and the kind of split that absolutely contradicts the unity that God wants us to be experiencing. And I say this before I move on. Because I want us to see what a truly new thing it is to church history that we would be splitting over preferences of things like music. Like that's just unheard of really before the last 150 years. So we need to keep that in mind when we disagree. You know, when we get into year two where you all hate me, (laughs) you know, and and, and w- what are things where we, like a family, we need to stay together and agree to disagree? And then where are the times that we really need to address? Is the unity compromised if we keep going this direction? All right, so that is a call to unity, both, well, first for Joshua and the 12 tribes, and then certainly carries over into the new covenant, into our churches, both locally and universally. We are called to be one body. We are called to be one flock. We are built on one foundation. But to strive for that unity and to enjoy that unity, we need to really understand that foundation that the unity is built on. So that's my second point, the foundation of the unity. We can see that the foundation of the unity of God's people is in God's command and our obedience. The foundation to the unity of God's people is found in God's command and in our obedience. So let's look at them both. First, the command. Look at verses 10 and 11. 
And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare yourselves, prepare your provisions. For within three days, you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So God commanded Joshua. Joshua commanded the people, go, take the land. And there's something really important in this word, you. (laughs) Take the land that the Lord your God has given to you. Because we read the English Standard Version, the ESV. But if we were to read the DSV, the Deep South Version, (laughs) this word you would more accurately be translated as y'all. Y'all take this land. This land is for y'all. There is this unifying understanding in the plural use of the word you. You can see it again in verse 13 and 14. The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give this land to you. Your wives, your little ones, your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But again, here's this all-encompassing. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before the brothers and shall help them. So he's saying you will fight together. You're going to fight. You have to stay united. You need to be unified. Unification is the only option. Division isn't an option among the people of Israel and it's not an option among the Christian church. And I love how with every, every command of the Bible, every time God gives us a command, he doesn't just say, do it. <laughs> he could, he's God. But he gives the command for our good and he gives us the tools to be able to carry out these commands. So what we see as we read the New Testament is that in some way, God in commanding us to be unified, is really calling us into something that's already been given to us. When we believe, when we are taken out of a kingdom of darkness and put into a kingdom of light, when we were given the Holy Spirit, we are in a real spiritual way unified. God has already unified us. He's made Jesus our greatest value. And so what he's really commanding is enjoy this thing that I've given you. Enjoy this unity. Don't be divided Enjoy being very different from each other. Enjoy the unification that I've given you. So that's why Paul says very clearly, there's one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. What point do you think Paul is trying to get across here? One. We are one because God is one. We're commanded to enjoy the thing that he's already given us. But we can't be naive about all the threats that Joshua faced in his efforts to unify Israel or the threats that we face in a 21st century church to our unity. Joshua and we face, we face external threats, we face internal threats, and we face an invisible threat. So I wanna flesh those out just a little bit. So first, the external threats. Joshua going into the promised land, had a very visible external threat. (laughs) There were people who did not want to leave. There were armies they were going to have to fight. There were other cultures that were in that land that had to be displaced. And if you're here and you're thinking, well, that sounds terrible, 
You know, how, how, could, how could someone go and take somebody's land? You're going to have to keep coming. <laughs> We're going to get there. We're going to address that later on in Joshua. But for the moment, we can say there was a very visible external threat in other cultures being on that land. And in the same way, we have the very visible external threat of living inside a culture that is going to push us away from God's plan for unity in our lives. We're gonna, we live in a culture that is telling us things like, you need to be you, you need to live the way you want to live your life. You need to, to have everything your way. And it shouldn't surprise us that that comes in and affects the unity in our church. You know, when, when we begin to demand, you know, I want, I, I want my way of music, I want my way of preaching, I want my seats to sit on. And I'm not saying these aren't important things in the Christian church. But we have to understand how our culture is impacting the unity that we are designed to experience and enjoy in this church. Because in our culture, there is always going to be a next new shiny thing in the church. There always is going to be. And if we're the type of Christian that just keeps hopping from church to church, going from one shiny new Christian thing to the next, then we're going to be the kind of Christian that becomes very superficial, flaky, and consumer-driven and knows nothing of the type of unity that God wants his people to experience and enjoy. So that's the external threat. Secondly, we have an internal threat. Joshua had to deal with sin in the camp. (laughs) That's a very common phrase, sin in the camp. It comes from this book of Joshua. He had sin in the camp. And what was the sin in the camp? Ultimately, selfishness. It doesn't matter what kind of walls we build around our church and around our families. Sin is in the camp. Selfishness is in the camp. And when you get selfish people together and we're allowed to operate unchecked, what happens? Division. Division very naturally happens. I, uh, I had a boy this week tell me that he really never struggles with selfishness unless his brother's around. <laughs> I was like, dude, this selfishness is yours. Your brother just shows it to you. <laughs> the same is true with all of us. We are naturally selfish. And because we're naturally selfish, we're going to naturally judge others more harshly than we're going to judge ourselves. And when that happens, increasingly, we're not the problem. Who is? Everyone else. And when everyone else is the problem, not me, division happens. It threatened Joshua and it threatens us today. So we have an external threat, an internal threat, and then finally we have an invisible threat. So when Joshua was preparing his army to march into the promised land, he not only had a physical army that he had to that he was going to have to fight. He had an invisible army that was gearing up to do battle against Israel at the same time. And that invisible army still exists and fights us today. And we would be naive not to consider all the ways Satan and his army want to attack God through his church. Because at the end of the day, Satan can't do anything to God. So what all he's left with is attacking God's plan. 